0: 2021. It's going to be a fantastic year here at Stitch Safari and we're starting off with a bang, literally. I'm trying to rein in my excitement here as the Bayeux Tapestry is, in my opinion, the pinnacle of medieval embroidery, assuredly on a par with the embroidery of Opus Anglicanum, but in a far, far different way. The longevity of the Bayeux tapestry displays the footprint of its past, both artistically and historically, and most importantly, as an embroidery, telling a visual story anyone can relate to. Hello, and welcome to the Stitch Safari Podcast, a sprightly and upbeat expedition into the alluringly appealing, ambrosial world of stitch history art and embroidery. Each fortnight we'll trek through and discover the utilitarian, the decorative, the quirky and the just plain fun world that is the art of the needle. Trust me. My name's Cathy Jack Copeland and I'm the Stitch Safari Expedition Leader. I'm an Australian textile artist, teacher, judge, blogger and stitch enthusiast whose work in contemporary machine stitch became my business. The Bayeux Tapestry While not shiny or pretty, indeed it can only be classified as unassuming and modest, both in the ground fabric and threads used, compared with the sparkling and opulent embroidery from Opus Anglicanum. But boy, oh boy, has this embroidery created controversy It's inspired world leaders and left us with a factual record of medieval life covering such things as warfare, clothing, transport and architecture. It is unique and unlike any other surviving artefact from this period. It's not simply an embroidery. It's a visual documentary of a major historical event designed and made within a short period of that event's happening. It's been used as propaganda by various leaders wishing to conquer England, as William did, and ever so cleverly employed by 20th century cartoonists and illustrators to produce precocious political satire. It's become a tourist attraction and a marketer's dream. It's an embroidery which has scaled heights no other embroidered textile has even reached. And although it's been copied and parodied, no one can take away from the fact that it's one of the most important, if not the most important embroidery in the world today the Bayer tapestry is the holy grail of embroidered narrative art because it's a true fusion between historic Viking textiles from the Scandinavian world circa 800 to 1200 AD providing a comparable link to the form and storytelling style we see replicated in the Bayer tapestry. The Vikings had no written language, but they did produce narrative style cartoons through weaving and embroidery, cementing their rituals and memories in their halls and early church churches where they were hung. I'm honestly surprised at how much is actually known and recorded about this epic medieval work, and thankfully, that must be laid at the feet of determined and unrelenting researchers from previous centuries and those who were willing to protect and ensure the tapestry's safety throughout its tumultuous life. The unique and historical documents and letters surrounding the Bayeux Tapestry offer another line of absolutely fascinating and riveting scrutiny. If one but had the time, but there's so much about the work that will forever be purely speculative supposition. And with the Bayer Tapestry, that's just the way it is. The information load here is large. So I need to begin by organising how I'm going to present this because I don't want to miss a thing. So I'm beginning with the Bayer Tapestry survival because I believe that's the only place to start. We wouldn't have a story if we didn't have the work. Sylvette Magnon, conservator of the tapestry in her 2005 book La Tapisserie de Bayeux, writes this. The Bayeux tapestry is one of the supreme achievements of the Norman Romanesque. Its survival, almost intact over nine centuries, is little short of miraculous. Its exceptional length, the harmony and freshness of its colors, its exquisite workmanship, and the genius of its guiding spirit combine to make it endlessly fascinating. Now, I just quickly want to confront the naming of the tapestry. It's not a tapestry at all, we all know that, it's an embroidery. But there's no way the name of the work is going to change now so throughout these episodes I'll be using both terms as they're both historically if not technically appropriate. The name the Bayer Tapestry is fixed in people's minds but most importantly it's fixed in their hearts. So without further ado Let's begin our journey into some of the known facts that makes the Bayeux Tapestry such a compelling saga. Its survival is one of almost implausible endurance. Bletchley Park allied codebreakers, a secret Nazi plot, literary feuds between English and French historians, a Calvinist sacking, narrow escapes from destruction during the French Revolution, inspiring a one-act musical, and Napoleon, who wanted to promote his conquest of England, just like William the Conqueror, using the tapestry as propaganda for his cause. These are the fascinating stories of the Bayeux tapestry's survival into the 21st century. And while some of this was known to me, I must say a great deal wasn't. I highly recommend Carola Hicks' book, The Bayer Tapestry, The Making of a Masterpiece, published by Vintage uh, Vintage Books in 2007. Highly readable and utterly fascinating. I have a couple of other book recommendations which I'll offer during upcoming episodes. The poem, To Countess Adela who was one of William the Conqueror's daughters, written around 1100 by an ambitious and cloying cleric named Baudry, Abbot of Bouguil, is an early, if slightly questionable, reference offering a full description of a wall hanging narrating the events of the conquest. Writing about a dealer to curry favour with her, Baudry wrote of Painted constellations on her chamber ceiling, a mapamundi painted on her floor, the symbols of education carved on her bedstead and the historical scenes on tapestries on her walls. And the final addition to this poem was an accurate description of an embroidered hanging with scenes of the Norman invasion. Baudry wrote this in his surviving poem. Around her bed, the conquest of England, Williams' claims to the throne as Edward's chosen successor, the comet, the Norman council and preparations, the fleet, the Battle of Hastings, with the feigned flight of the Normans and the real one of the English, and the death of Harold. Now that's a pretty spot-on account of the tapestry, even mentioning Halley's Comet, which only appears once every 75 years. So at some point, it's highly plausible Baudry saw the tapestry, most likely when it was hanging in the church in Bayeux, not hanging in Lady Adela's bedchamber as he wishes us to think in his poem. That just seems utterly fanciful to me. So do we trust Baudry's words? Well, I think it seems to indicate that at least some interest was taken in the tapestry not long after it was made and prior to the first suggested account of it in 1476 uh, in the Church Inventory. The poem exists and the description is just so accurate. What makes a lot of sense is Baudry's wanting to curry favour with the Lady Adela using any means he could and the tapestry was about her father, after all. Now to the church in Bayeux, where, for 400-odd years, the tapestry supposedly had only an annual airing for a short period of time, helping to protect it from damp and insects. At some point, though, this ritual seems to have been foregone and forgotten, until the tapestry had its first brush with near disaster. According to Carola Hicks in her book, The Bayeux Tapestry, The Life Story of a Masterpiece, the true history of the tapestry only starts in 1476, where mention was made of the work in an inventory of the treasury of the Cathedral Church of Notre Dame of Bayeux describing it as a very long and narrow hanging of linen embroidered with figures and inscriptions representing the conquest of England, which is hung around the nave of the church on the Feast of Relics, July 1, and throughout the octave, the eight days following the religious festival. This account was in complete contrast to the sumptuous and opulent descriptions used for other prized possessions of the church, described by Hicks as gem-encrusted gold and silverware, altarpieces and reliquaries, crystal vases, sapphires, pearls, beryls, a blue-green mineral, coral and enamel inlays, and the gold-embroidered, pearl-strewn, I love that term, pearl-strewn chasubles, copes and tunics, each more magnificent than the next, culminating in the sumptuous mantles worn on their wedding day and donated by the wills of William and Matilda. Yet it may have been just this difference between unpretentious humbleness and and shining opulence which saved the Bayeux tapestry from almost certain destruction on a number of occasions the 16th century's religious and civil wars wreaked havoc on catholic buildings in france when many precious items from the past were either looted or destroyed sunday may 10 1562 A mob of French Calvinists stormed the Bayeux Cathedral, bringing mass to a brutal end when pistols were fired, people's ears were sliced off and officiating clergy had their throats cut. This orgy of violence was recorded later by the bishop who listed gold and silver chalices and candelabra presented by Odo, William's brother, caskets studded with precious stones, a five metre high silver-covered wooden crown of thorns and the hidden stores of jeweled crucifixes either destroyed or stolen gold embroidered vestments and silk hangings were unsuccessfully concealed stained glass windows were smashed the organ destroyed and chests and cupboards broken into yet the tapestry survived It wasn't on display in the month of May so must have been stored away somewhere, perhaps in the cedar wood chest dating from the late 13th to early 14th century, now on exhibition in the Cathedral Treasury as the very one that supposedly housed the tapestry. But you have to ask, why did it survive? And again, the answer may lay in its modest materials as well as its mostly non-religious narrative. Or it may have just been simply overlooked during the ransacking. Its next hazard lay in the French Revolution, and as with many revolutions, destroying past art was one way to make way for a new history. Carola Hicks writes so well about this. On November 2, 1789, all French church property was nationalised, with the state seizing the contents of churches, abbeys and monasteries and removing them to either local or Parisian depots. The question then arose as to whether the objects should be displayed or sold off to the public. And again, this association with the tapestries, non-religious non glitteringly ostentatious yet monarchical narrative may have been its saving grace. Rumour has it that the bishop hid the chest containing the tapestry in his study, but this has been superseded by an 1838 eyewitness report of a man who saved it from the 1792 volunteer call to arms in response to an anticipated British invasion. Carts and wagons were needed to carry equipment. These required covers and the municipal council granted permission to use the tapestry currently stored in the cathedral. It was seized and placed on a wagon. Rescue came quickly in the form of Monsieur Lambert Leonard La Forestiere the local administrator and commissioner of police, who sprang into action by running to his office and dashing off an order for the tapestry's retrieval. He was able to exchange this precious relic for sheets of sacking, keeping the tapestry in his own office as a precaution. And his portrait now hangs in the entrance hall of the centre Guillaume-la-Conquerant in Bayer today. Two years later in February of 1794, the tapestry was again in jeopardy. Church festivals were now replaced by civil ones and the tapestry was to be cut into pieces to decorate a float carrying the genius of arts in a procession around the town. Its rescuers were the newly appointed art commissioners for the Bayer district By now, local groups were encouraged to rescue, inventory and provide safe storage depots for vulnerable possessions formerly in the care of churches and chateaux. The concern, however, now was that the best of these possessions might be removed and displayed in the new art museum being established in the former Palace of the Louvre. Who knew if they would ever return The tapestry became a priority. The local mayor ignored two letters asking where the tapestry was kept. But eventually pressure was brought to bear and it was retrieved from the sacristy of the former cathedral, now called a Temple of Reason. The tapestry was designated a monument of antiquity rather than an objet d'art and was initially omitted from inventory. The reason may have been a reluctance to bring Bayeux's precious relic to the attention of Paris authorities for fear of its being housed in the Louvre, which opened to the public in August 1793. Again, the likelihood is that the tapestry's unique style and simple materials, as well as its awkward size and subject matter, may have helped protect it from being acquired by the Louvre it was again safe in Bayeux for the moment. Next comes Napoleon and in 1803, now as head of state, his campaign to glorify both himself and France was aligned with the tapestry and William the Conqueror's victory over England. He wanted to demonstrate France's domination over its ancient enemy, England. And the tapestry showed this could be done. He wanted to become the new conqueror. Napoleon looked to the tapestry to see how William had moved so many men from France to England. Carola Hicks writes, Napoleon ordered an ambitious program in Bologna and the other Channel ports, with the goal of constructing 700 transport barges in just a few months. William had built and assembled a fleet of at least 800 ships between January and July 1066. Huge costs coupled with ongoing delays required spin doctoring for public consumption. An exhibition featuring the tapestry would demonstrate both their cultural aims along with their glorious leader's new regime. The tapestry was displayed at the former Louvre Palace, renamed the People's Museum, or the Musée Napoléon, under direct instruction from Napoleon himself. Carola Hicks writes, In the Bayeux Tapestry, the life story of a masterpiece, it was hung in the long Galerie d'Apollon, Designed by Lebrun, architect of the Hall of Mirrors at Versailles, replacing works by Raphael, Michelangelo and Poussin, which normally hung there. Publicity for the upcoming exhibition of this medieval relic took the form of two front-page newspaper articles, making the purpose of the exhibition absolutely clear by writing. This fragile monument seems to have been miraculously preserved in Bayeux in order to reveal to our eyes what is going on today. It could not more directly predict the same outcome to the same enterprise. Napoleon was using the tapestry as a propaganda tool to align himself alongside the victorious William in the eyes of his people. How amazing is this? An embroidery, long forgotten and nearly destroyed on two occasions, is now being used as propaganda to support the aims of France's new leader being exhibited in the Louvre and replacing world-renowned masterpieces. And it wasn't to be the last time the tapestry would be exhibited at the Louvre but we have to wait for the events of World War Two to unfold. Surely the Bayeux Tapestry must have been the first ever embroidered artwork to have been displayed at the People's Museum, the Louvre, where magnificent ancient embroideries are now often displayed. What an achievement and what a triumph for a humble narrative textile embroidered by medieval women, recalling our close association with a Viking heritage. Measuring 68.38 metres long and 0.5 of a metre wide, consisting of nine panels with the final part of the tapestry unfortunately missing, one can still easily imagine the designer and the embroiderers poring over their work to create this masterful chronicle. And what a story! The defeat of a king and the making of a new one. All captured forever in simple stitches using hand-dyed and hand-spun woolen threads sewn onto a tabby weave linen ground. Be still, my beating heart. There's more to this fascinating story. But in deference to making a good story last longer, I'm going to finish here. The next episode will be nothing less than explosive. Loyal listeners, thank you for taking the time to listen to this amazing history of a magnificent embroidery. This is one of the best stories I've come across. It's just fascinating. Till the next episode, please don't forget to visit the Stitch Safari website, stitchsafari.com or the Stitch Safari podcast Facebook page where I regularly post interesting tidbits. Stitch Safari is also now on Instagram, so there's plenty of opportunities to follow all the amazing journeys I hope to explore. Till the next episode, bye for now.